Welcome back, everybody, to the Uncensored CMO. One of the things I love doing on this podcast is meeting founders and finding out just how they did it. My next guest, Luke Bowes, is founder of non-alcoholic beer brand Lucky Saint. And it's a really incredible story. Lucky Saint invented a brand where no brand existed. There was no non-alcoholic beer brand before they came to the market. They had loads of challenges, finding a brewery to launch with, launching during COVID and having no customers for a while. It's a really incredible story. Luke is a real professional who's, who's crafted his brand and really focused on executing superbly and building a brand that didn't exist before. It's a really fascinating story, full of rich insight and loads of things you can learn about being an entrepreneur and about creating success. This is an amazing episode. I know you'll love it. My conversation with Luke Bose. In fact, Luke, let's start with, is Lucky Saint the biggest non-alcoholic beer? It's not the biggest non we're the biggest we always say we're the biggest dedicated alcohol free yeah. beer brand. So there's lots of the Heineken zeros of this world. There's lots of like, alcohol free versions of mainstream brands. But yeah, we're the biggest chat sort of challenger dedicated. Now brand. before before I get into the story, because I can't wait to hear more about it and, and a massive fan of what you've done. Um tell us about life before, like you say. What were you doing? And I'd love to know what was the moment you went, I'm gonna do a non alcoholic beer brand. So I always think like I, I grew up in a family full of people who worked in advertising. So my mum worked in advertising, my dad worked in advertising, my sister worked in advertising. So I was the only thing I was ever going to do was go and work in advertising. And I used to spend university holidays and school holidays being a runner at production companies and, and loved it. And then for some reason, when I left uni, I thought before I went kind of like feet first into that, I should just like try something else. And so I got, I got some work, work experience at a fund management company uh, for three months. And then at the end of three months, they offered me a job and I sort of fell into it and ended up spending, I guess, the best part of 10 years doing that. There were lot, like lots of, uh, you know, I guess my, my job was like looking at companies and kind of in an, like as an, as an analyst. So I got really interested in businesses and trying to figure them out, but I was never, I was never passionate enough about it as a job to be able, I think, just to be to love it and to be really good at it. So, so if, if you take back to the analyst days, then how would you assess your own business now that you're a business owner with your analyst hat on? I don't know. Well, I guess it like I, I guess it, I sort of end up. I'm on the other side of the table now because I'm. I, I, I'm, we've raised money over the like over the course of the journey. So, always you know talking to investors about yeah. like, well, like what's the story? Why is it interesting? What's the opportunity? How big could the category be? Like, why does our strategy work? So all of that stuff, I've always, I've always found like a really interesting and right and really enjoyed it. Now you're creating the opportunity itself, right? So that must yeah. be fun. Yeah, I like sitting on the other side of the table. Yeah. So yeah, so I worked in that industry for like. 10 years doing like various, I guess, different nuanced around different things around like similar role. And then ended up working for a Belgian entrepreneur who had a few different businesses and really looking for new opportunities for him. So again, like on paper, really interesting role to go and find new, new things for him to do until and a few few like a few a, a few projects that we went on work, worked on were interesting and then one day he he had he had this oil and gas business in Kazakhstan 
the the agreement was always that I was there to do everything, like work on anything, any project apart from the oil and gas business, because they had a thousand employees, and you know this was a, it was a, uh, you know that I was that's what I wasn't there to do. Anyway, he said, Luke, could you just do me a favor and do one project in Kazakhstan? Anyway, two years later, I was still working on projects in Kazakhstan. Really, wow. I was I was I was London based, yeah. but like it was all looking at like projects out there, and so I guess. Uh, kind of sl- slowly but surely got a, a, a less and less motivated around what I was doing. And I guess I was also at an age where I was a bit like, oh, what, what is my career going to look like? And in so in the kind of the nature of projects that sort of spin up and are very intense, and then when they spin down, I'd spend all of that time trying to figure out what I wanted to do next. Uh, and in 2015, I met two founders of a technology business. So proper startup st- concept stage uh, business, and I remember so clearly sitting in a meeting uh, in, a, in a meeting with them, and the level of passion and energy and the amount of belief they had in what they were doing was completely infectious. And I thought, God, I want to be on that side of the table. I want to be that excited about what I'm doing every day. And it, and it just opened my eyes to the kind of the world of startups. And I think we sometimes underestimate the importance of energy compared to the idea, don't we? we? We kind of think, oh, it's all about how clever the idea is. But actually, a lot of entrepreneurs succeed through just sheer force of personality and energy and commitment and never say die kind of attitude, don't they? Just sheer hustle. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. As you linked to your advertising background, we, uh, I worked on LucasAid many years ago, and one of the campaigns we came up with was "Energy Beats Everything." The idea that actually doesn't matter how much talent you've got, unless you've got the energy and the fight, you know, you're not going to go anywhere. Which I, which I thought was interesting. But so then, yeah, so I met these two founders of this technology business, and and kind of got obsessed about starting my own thing, and trying to figure out what that would be, and a few ideas came and went. But the one I could never shake off was this idea of reinventing the alcohol-free beer category. Because in 2016, there were basically two, there was just two products in the market. It was Bex Blue and there was something called Bavaria 0.0. And I just thought, God, on paper, this is the best proposition in the world. For the right person on the right occasion, you know, this idea of kind of all, all the experience of a beer without the function of the alcohol in it, you know, for, on the right, what better proposition could there be? But the reality was I wasn't, I wasn't even a consumer of alcohol-free beer, and I sort of wasn't even close to it, but I felt like I just, yeah, I just got very kind of emotionally attached to this idea of kind of taking this dusty old category and trying to make it aspirational. So it wasn't that you would, drinking non-alcoholic beer or you're frustrated you couldn't get the taste or you're on a moral crusade or anything like that so it, it wasn't driven by that per se no it was it was driven by the fact I'd, i loved the idea of the proposition yeah i was obsessed by trying like wanting to start my own thing and i really enjoyed like the process of i guess sort of like road testing ideas and trying to figure out if you know god would it be possible to build a dedicated alcohol-free beer brand and then you kind of get into was it, and there are kind of two, two parts to that. There's like one: is it possible to brew a beer that's good enough to bring me and others into the category? And then is it possible to build a brand that will make people feel positive about that? Because I think 
if we go back, we've all we've all done this thing. We've all like, apologised for not drinking. So whether that's sitting down with a friend and and saying, yeah, oh God, I'm I'm sorry, it's a Tuesday, I'm not drinking. Like we shouldn't you shouldn't you shouldn't have to apologise. But it's also if you, if you go out with with some friends like in the middle of the week and they're all having pints and then you're you're driving or whatever and you get like a two fifty mil orange juice, you, you feel like you you really feel like you're not part of the evening, do you? Yeah, completely. So then, yeah, I guess then the, the sort of analytical part of me was then trying to figure out if it was even possible to build, you know, was the category even big enough to build a brand that only did one thing? And the pretty short answer was no, because at the, at the time, the category, and it was a £60 million category in retail, which means that I guess at the, if you then sort of back that out at the brewer's level, that's probably a £30 million category. And if you got a 10% share of category, it's a £3 million business, which probably isn't probably isn't viable mm. as a standalone kind of as a standalone business i guess the big insight came when i figured out that in the uk at this point half a percent of beer sales were alcohol free half a percent so it's this tiny tiny category that sits across the bottom of the beer market but in germany it was 6% of beer sales and in Spain, it was 14% of beer sales. So all, all of these other European countries just had these you know, huge alcohol-free beer categories. And then, so it then just became about figuring out, well, why has the UK been so left behind? And at that point, you get you get the belief. And this, I guess, to the to the point on like telling the story and pitching the story. That's you know that's what it is. It's like well, yes, it's t- it's tiny now, but if if the category becomes five or ten percent of beer sales because consumers are all moderating, then it becomes a much, much bigger opportunity. I'm intrigued, I'm intrigued by the fact you decided to build a non-alcoholic-only brand as well, because the other beers you referenced have all got very well-known, you know, alcohol variants, certainly. So you get Bex, you've got Bex Blue, or Peroni, you've got Peroni, you percent um, How challenging was it to make the brand just dedicated to non-alcoholic when you don't have the advantage of all the equity and the heritage and the taste credentials of those kind of more mature brands i guess or that, an advantage? I, guess, I, think I guess that was the, i guess that yeah. was the opportunity because it gives you suddenly permission all the all the restrictions of having a mother brand that's a full strength beer all of the conflict that in, exists within well how do you sell an alcohol free beer in that proposition while also selling the proposition of a full strength beer all of the kind of conflict that's inherent in that and actually just being able to have a u- unique perspective on alcohol free beer that's not kind of tainted by full strength beer was always the, for me was always the really really interesting bit and that opportunity to be like look we've you know this is the one thing we do this is this is this is the product that we live and die by and that specialism means that we're able to produce a better quality product which is kind of which was always i guess it's the bit that it took the longest from from the idea of the original idea in, in 2016, we'd launch until the end end, uh, end of 2018. Wow! So what? So, so two spent, and a half years or so. Spent two years, yeah, working with six different breweries in three different countries, trying to figure out how to brew alcohol-free beer well. <laughs> That's quite an investment from them as well, presumably, because I mean, you, you didn't have any pre-orders to do at that point. So, how do you convince them to invest the time and energy and? That it takes to, to to come up with a recipe and brew when you're a, when you're a small brand. Yeah, well, I, I, brand I mean, no, well, yeah, non-existent, no brand. Yeah, <laughs> just like me and a story 
going around to originally to like breweries in the UK and trying to build relationships with the right people and convince them that it would be an interesting way for them to spend some of their time. But it was pretty hard. And actually the same thing happened on on repeat, really, as I sort of worked my way around, was I'd sell the idea into a CEO or an owner of a brewery. And then they would say, oh, actually, you know, that sounds kind of interesting the way you tell it, like maybe there's something in this. Um, this was way before alcohol-free was of any interest to, like, it's such a, it, it's now like, there's so much interest in the category, but wind back seven years, there was there was no interest in the category. So how do you convince them? I guess that same story. Look, here's a category that is actually it's it's, it's growing underlying. So there've been, I think there's been twelve percent compound annual growth, like year after year after year in the category, despite the fact that there was no innovation, despite the fact that there weren't great products, uh, despite the fact that there was no like marketing around the category. And I think actually the the anecdote I always used to, I always used to say I think this is what tonic water would have looked like fifteen years ago. Nice. And then they go, oh, maybe maybe that is a maybe that is a, and then and then they'd convince their head brewer or their brewmaster to spend some time on it. But usually we'd have you do one brew and it wouldn't be very good, and then you do a second brew and it something would go wrong. It would you'd, like you'd get. I don't know, it would get infected or something, something would go wrong and then I'd get the call from the owner just being like, Luke, Luke I'm sorry. You know, we've got, we've got a lot on. My head brewer's not into it. We're going to have to park it. So I'd kind of try and take the learnings from that relationship and then take it on to the next one and go again and again. And anyway, now, we managed to get there in the end. If I can ask, at this time, have you got a job at this time? How are you funding yourself? Are you- so I've still got a job. You, you've still got a job. So you, this, is, this is all... Done in the background while you're yeah, this doing is, Kazakhstan investing and that something. Well, yeah, looking at like yeah, ex- extraordinary projects in Kazakhstan and <laughs> sounds like the title of a movie, doesn't it? Extraordinary projects in Kazakhstan. Um, yeah, there's a whole there's, there's probably a whole there's, there's a whole podcast you could do on this on the things that happen out there. But anyway, yeah, e- like evenings, weekends, downtime. I mean, the I remember funny if I remember. After I'd figured out, I guess, quite a lot. And I, there was a one, I'd gone through five brewing relationships and there was still a particular technology that I really wanted to try um, that wasn't available in the UK, was available in Germany. And so I kind of got back to my research and got really excited about a brewery in Bavaria who I found out had this te- particular piece of technology that I was looking for. And they also brewed their like, amazing lagers in their own right. And I got hold of the CEO's email and did my kind of, uh, wrote my, you know, when you craft those emails that you're like, I, I don't have a lot, I, I, I can't say very much here, but I just need to land enough of the bit. Anyway, I sent this like nice email and I said, look, I'm in Germany on Friday. I'm in the area. Can I pop by? It's just pure love. Classic. Classic hustle. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and... I can't tell you how many of these emails go totally unanswered yeah. over the course of you know two wow. years, and he responded in two minutes, and he said, "Sure, pop by at one," which was which gave me a bit of a fright because I was like, "Shit, I've got to get out there now." Yeah. <laughs> That's brilliant. But anyway, went over there and I guess went 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 through the pitch with him, and the bit that 
I guess I remember the meeting so clearly and you walk into this kind of amazing, old, very kind of traditional looking German uh, Bavarian architecture building and it was totally deserted and I, uh, I walked in the front door and I was just walking walking around looking for anyone to find anywhere. Eventually I, I did find my way to the CEO and sat in his sat in his office and it was explaining what I, I guess what I wanted to try and achieve and I was not getting a lot of like his eyes weren't lighting up with excitement until got to explaining this bit around just how low the penetration of the category is in the UK compared to Germany and then what the range of products available were and I think that was the bit that kind of got him going he's like oh, okay well I think the problem is, is there isn't good enough product for the category at, at the moment. And and he slammed his fist on the table and and marched me over to the uh, across across the courtyard to the other side of the brewery to meet the brewmaster. And we literally, yeah, we started started talking about what the beer should look like, and and it went from there. I'd love to know: Have you met any of the people that turned you down recently from before? Yes, yeah, so, like some of them. And somewhere, somewhere, but, sit there going, that's the one that got away. Jeez, we didn't see Well, that. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. To, to be honest, the one who I haven't seen, but I would love to see. Cause I, so I, I remember in the really early stages of trying to figure out, I was trying to find anyone to brew, like, because I had no experience in beer, no experience in marketing, I didn't have any experience in anything that was relevant, actually. But I managed to get a call with a guy who'd been CEO of one of the like major craft brewers at the time. And I was so excited by this call. So I was like, this, this guy's going to be, he's going to be, he's going to be the answer to all my questions. And I'd, I'd done my prep for the call. And I remember sitting in the, I was sitting in the stairwell, sorry, hiding at the office, but I had to be in the stairwell so no one could hear the conversation that was going on. And all the anticipation, and actually he was, he was out in the middle of buying a bacon sandwich and a coffee and he just he just completely panned the idea. He was like, yeah, we looked at it. The category is tiny. We we know like I've got the best brewer in the UK. If he can't do it, no one can do it. Um, I think you'd be better off making fizzy drinks. Ooh, really? Yeah. What I love about that story is I've got a theory because if I was to launch a soft drink in the UK, I'd probably got as good experience as you could possibly expect. You know, 20 years, done lots of innovation, worked in small, big companies, et cetera, et cetera. Sometimes that's a constraint because it, I would know all the things that could go wrong. I'd know the statistics are stacked against me. I'd know the buying power of Coke and Britvic and, you know, people like that that, are, you know, dominate 90% of the shelves, big JBP agreements, retailers. I could tell you 100 reasons why you shouldn't launch a soft drink. And I just wonder whether the fact you didn't have any industry experience in a weird sense, actually was part of the advantage because you weren't necessarily going in, you're going in with optimism maybe rather than going in with a, here's what could go wrong. Yeah, blind, naive optimism. <laughs> <laughs> but I think that's the only... But, but I think that happens, a lot of entrepreneurs actually don't innovate in the in the area they got experience of. They often look at other categories and take you know take a fresh perspective and it carries them quite far. I think so. In a sense, there's, a, there's definitely some advantages. Like you definitely are able to go faster if you know the answers to stuff. Yeah. You, I don't think you necessarily, you probably don't challenge things in quite the same way. That's true. Um, yeah. It, interestingly, I think that like the branding kind of journey that we've been on and 
kind of creating the brand was fraught with loads of things I guess could have could have done better but the I guess the kind of relentless pursuit of trying to I had something in my mind's eye that I couldn't necessarily articulate but you just sort of you just kind of relentlessly kind of have to keep going with it and, and eventually figure it out and I don't know if you've got tons of experience you just you get to something that's familiar or you've done before or so if you want to kind of create something you're different. probably more like to follow the category codes aren't you that's exactly. expected rather than take a fresh perspective yeah so before we get onto the branding and the and the beer itself i'd love to talk about that at what point did you give up the day job and actually when, when did this become your full-time so i went full full-time at the beginning of february 2018 um and the point in the journey with the beer was done so I had like confidence on that. We created a brand. I had a, a deck to go out and like raise some money with. Now, now, did you have to raise the money before you sold a bottle? So were you raising money to kick it off or, or do you invest yourself in it to get it going in the first place? I mean, I, like I'd invested a lot in getting to that point. I think one of the things I always wanted to ensure that there was a obviously one of the best result possible, but also I... I've always kind of like set myself the objective of like, it's fine for this not to be successful, but I don't want to spend five, six, seven, eight, nine years figuring out that it's not successful. Mm. And one of the ways to, I guess, like put put the tension in and make it go faster is to put proper investment behind it and find out and, you know, failure is fine, but I'd, I'd rather because that's I think that's a conundrum quickly. a lot of people face actually is is well you got you got a number of things going on because you how, how much do you have to prove the concept before you get the investment and also people are fearful about giving away equity in something you know early particularly so you've got all those dilemmas going on then you've got to how do you make a living as well because presumably you need to pay the rent and that kind of stuff as well so how, how do you balance all those kind of conflicting um, demands on you yeah I did I have I had a bit of a coup out of my last job. I managed, I did manage to be made redundant, which was helpful. So that that helped with kind of surviving the, the very early months, and then yeah, raised went out to I guess started going out and raising some money and and kind of talking to people for the first time about the idea. What's the feedback? So it's a because presumably you'd in your head you'd you know this is unstoppable right at this point. Yeah. What will happen when you broke cover with the idea and started presenting it? Well, so I went out with a. It was a. It, the brand was called Not Another Beer Co. Or Nabco for short. Basically, I had a. I guess in the run up to that, had developed this brand, and funny enough, with all of the right kind of like strategy and thinking behind it and then I'd gotten distracted with the naming part and kind of insisted on this name of not another beer co and we'd ended up with a design route because of that kind of all it all fed off the name and it was quite it was quite a the opening slide on the presentation was not Bex blue not apologizing not a range extension not just another beer um, so it was quite kind of it was quite kind of provocative. Yeah, it, like, it was like so it definitely got your attention. Some people liked it and were like, you know, great, Luke. You know, I'd love to love to support you. And some people said no. And but unless someone can articulate, I guess in the I was I probably always knew there was something not quite right about it, something not quite right about it. But you're co- I'm I'm on my, I'm a solo founder. I'm totally on my own. 
it, having the kind of courage of your convictions is quite is quite difficult. And so you sort of just keep going until I got into, well, I didn't get into I, I knew of a guy called Ben Bilbal who founded an agency called Karmarama, uh, an ad agency. And I was like, oh, I tell you what, I'm going I'm to send the deck to Ben and maybe, maybe he'll put some money in. I sent the deck to Ben and he emailed straight back and he was like, interesting, Luke, let's have a, let's have a call. And he picks up the phone and literally the first words, I think, out of his mouth on the phone call were, I lo- like, love the idea of building a brand in a category that has no brands. Super, like, love all of that. How far down the naming and branding route are you? <laughs> <laughs> and I was like, yeah, re- sort of ready to hit print. And he said, I think you should start again. How do you take that? Well... He then went. He then articulated really, really succinctly why, and he said, "Well, look, what you've done is you've started with a name that is positioning yourself in opposition to a category, and so you're naturally, creatively, you're just going to continue to get pushed into the defining yourself by what you're not, rather than by what you are." And he said, "Funny enough, it's quite easy in the beginning to do that because you've got there's this like natural enemy, and you know." But over time, it will creatively become harder and harder because you'll run out of ways to define yourself as different. And he explained it as quickly as that. And in that instant, I was like, in my head, it was like, tore it up and stuff. And you ditched your name, right? So how long does it take to go from that point to Lucky Saint? So then it took two months. Okay. So I then went to... Jono and Stu and Ben at Other Way, who funny enough, I'd, I'd met very fortuitously. One of the I, there's a like there's a number of like lucky saint kind of serendipitous coincidences that have happened along the way. But meeting them was one of those that happened off the back of my leaving do from my old job. But anyway, John uh, Jono went straight back to them and was like, having been talking to them about, oh, could you help me with launch and stuff? It's like actually we just need to start again. So they then uh, help with everything through naming, identity, and and really like help set the playbook and like write kind of this really clear playbook around what Lucky Saint was 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 going to be. And the interesting bit it was it was quite quick actually because all of the kind of original strategy work and insight that had come. From like in all of the previous work was still all relevant and it was all still the right work it was just we needed to start with a better we needed to start with a better name and and, and if you, you look at the beer category you've either got like provenance haven't you the, you know where are you from or you've got punk kind of craft you know alternative hip-hop sort of thing haven't you and then you've got this very different position i mean you've even got a nun in your poster you know which is like very un kind of unpunk. yeah and it's kind i guess it's kind of one of our, what we call our call to arms is break rules, honor traditions. Because there's a whole, I think there's a whole, there's a whole load of category conventions that we should absolutely like stand by and borrow because they work and they're helpful. Um, so we should honor those things. But then there's a whole, there's a whole load of rules that we can break along the way that will make us uh, different and more interesting. So yeah, lots of the, I think the original insight around like just understanding how the category works and actually the ambition was and is 
like to build the world's defining alcohol-free brand, which means we need to be ubiquitous for our for our audience. And in order to do that, we're going to be, have to be distributed in a hell of a lot of different places. And if you just think about uh, hospitality, we want to be listed in Michelin star restaurants and five star hotels. We also need to be listed in casual dining, in Honest Burgers, in Pizza Pilgrims. And we want to be listed in the coolest parts of East London, the gastro pubs of West London. And so the brief was always like trying to create an identity that can sit comfortably in all of those different environments. And the thread that always comes back through it is it's it's all about quality. So the biggest driver of decision-making in the category is taste. And so therefore quality is the most important, yeah, it's the most important thing we can do. And whether we're talking to the bar manager in a Michelin star restaurant or a five-star hotel, or I'm talking to Tom at Honest Burgers, we'll tell it's exactly the same story about the way that we produce the beer and the quality. And that's consistent across everything that we do. That makes a lot of sense. I mean, when you, when you have a, a Bex Blue, for example, or a Peroni 0%, you're always left with the, yeah, it's not quite the same though, is it? You know, it's sort of a bit watery. It's not quite the full taste. Uh, by the way, we should say for anyone uh, watching, this is it. Uh, anyone listening, we're enjoying a, a bottle as we speak. Um, but it does have that full-bodied, proper beer taste, doesn't it? Which is, which is really pleasing. You don't feel like you're missing out. Or, or trading down somehow, like you, like you do with other. Yeah. Examples. So, the bo- the bo- the body thing was always like I think that's the biggest challenge. Like alcohol-free beers traditionally don't have much flavour or kind of mouthfeel and body to them. And what we ended up doing was so Lucky Saint's an unfiltered lager, which means it therefore retains. You don't go through this process of filtering the beer. So if you filter the beer, it gives you a clear bright beer which is what we traditionally think of as lager but by leaving it unfiltered it means you retain more of that flavor and body and you get this like wonderful kind of hazy slightly hazy beer the bit i lo- like love about lucky saint and when you you get it you know perfectly poured pint and it's this kind of straw colored slight just a tiny bit hazy with just a perfect cap of white froth on top and it was exactly how it was i remember the first time i tasted it at the brewery and in development, flying over to Germany and walking into the brewery and being handed this little half stein of of like perfectly poured beer and just thinking, but we've done it, we're there. How many iterations did you go through before you got to that point? Uh, Four or five in Germany and then like met many across five different brewing relationships before that. Now, one of the fascinating things I think about Lucky Saint is you're a one like beer brand, which is really unusual, isn't it? I mean, you know, when you think about it, most brands by now would have done Lucky Sinner that had done the kind of, you know, the, the red version and the blue version and, you know, spun off in all, all sorts of places. You've stuck very religiously, haven't you, to this product. Is, is that a strategy? Have you intentionally ruled out doing lots of spin-offs off the brand? A hundred percent. 80% of the world's beer consumption is lager. So my belief is if there's going to be a defining alcohol-free brand, it'll be defining by producing 
the world's best alcohol-free lager. So anything else that we do risks distracting from that mission. So therefore have always been, yeah, always resisted. You know, we could definitely be a bigger business if we had, you know, more products, but would we be as focused and as kind of famous for one thing? And I think there's, for me, there's just like, there's great power in that. There's something about the constraint of just having one thing, isn't it? That means that you're focused on making that one thing even better rather than, because you get very busy, couldn't you, doing other things? A bit like Red Bull. I mean, Red Bull, I think, is one of the outstanding innovations of the last sort of 20 years, isn't it? And you think they've achieved enormous turnover through one product by just being amazing at it. And this was, it was one of the things, so Jam Jar, one of our, our investors, Jam Jar was founded by the three innocent founders. I remember Rich Reed talking to, talking to him about this and Red Bull, because Red Bull and Innocent launched in the same quarter, I think, in the late 90s. And just the difference between those two businesses and like building around one single product versus Innocent who've built around, you know, a, a really big range now. And he said the opportunity to build a like iconic single product brand doesn't come around very often. So like you should really like you should go you should go after that really hard. Yeah, because when you think about it, you think of Coca-Cola, don't you? Or you think of Red Bull. I mean, there aren't many. Uh, yes, it's a very good point that. Now, I, I'm glad you raised investors. You've got a pretty awesome list of people investing in your business. Uh, talk to me about some of the people that have invested and how they're helping you on the journey. Yeah, we've got an amazing cap table. We've had, who have we got? We've got uh, Jonathan Warburton, who uh, has been yeah an amazing supporter since in twenty eight before launch in twenty eighteen, and we've got obviously the Jam Jar guys who are the most amazing investors because between Adam, Rich, and John, they all provide different insights. It's insane to have those people like yeah. So and do they give you advice? I mean, do they get involved in decisions and um, help and stuff like that? So Adam, Adam sits on our board. Uh, so he was the kind of commercial kind of part of the trio. John has supported us on, I guess, like production projects and things around like systems and how we should set ourselves up. And then Rich, uh, yeah, set up one of the things, I guess one of my jobs is always to try and figure out how, how we can leverage the amazing cap table that we've got and the amazing investors who are on it. So Rich sits on our brand council which is him Shalen Patel who's our chairman who was ex Guinness and Diageo from like back in the day and then ran Distill Ventures so he Ben Bilbo who's obviously Kamarama Jono from Other Way so they make up the brand council and I try and always I guess run not not too often, but always I try and put important stuff in front of them. And Rich is always brilliant, actually. He's like, if we're trying to do like something new, he's a bit like, no, no, you've got the most incredible brand. Like the copy, the copy and the tone of voice is awesome. Like, don't change a thing. Just keep just keep doing what you're doing. It's great to have that sort of backing to not get distracted by trying. Well, he's to do seen things. the other side, hasn't he? You know, you know, to a brand get to scale and market leadership. It's true because the temptation to keep changing, isn't it, and try new things is is very real. And you've also got some uh, famous ad people as well on your uh, team, investor team, haven't you, as well? Yeah, so we've got Jay, James Murphy and David Golding, who are Adam and Eve founders, Ben Bilbo, 
So yeah, there's a there's a there, we've got some some. So what, why can you come up with adverts? You have a really big debate about the advertising does. <laughs> um, I mean, it's been amazing. So that, like NCA, which is James and David's new agency, they did our January campaign in 2022. But the original the original work, so the Nun actually came out of a piece of work with Karma that we did right right at the beginning, which was it was an, just an amazing coup. If you imagine, we were. So we launched in October and Ben very kindly invited us into Karmarama for like an afternoon workshop with, it was like, a, I mean, there's just lots of directors and it was, it was quite intimidating going in and being a bit like, I mean, we just, we don't know what we're doing here, but like, and so they ran a kind of, I guess a brainstorming on the brief was like, how can we bring the brand to life? Like we just launched four weeks earlier. Um, the reception on the product was amazing when we launched. We were winning loads of new entree distribution. Everything was really good, but we also we didn't have anything really beyond a bottle of beer. And so the brief was like, what could we do for January in terms of sort of bringing the brand to life and doing something interesting? And the the uh, the the kind of creative idea that kind of rose to the top was unexpected lucky saints. And of those, then this idea of a nun drinking our beer was the one that mm. like very quickly rose to the top of that. Which is very surprising, and, isn't it? And, and it's also beautifully kind of shot, isn't it? Y- yeah. Quite so it was. So it was shot by Rankin. Was it? Yeah. Oh, wow. So he, yeah, Karma You're putting like, in put, quite a few favors at this point, aren't you? Have well, you like, it was. The, <laughs> it was just a total coup because we had no money. The bud, the the brief of the thing was like we have zero budget for it and Kamarama were like well what we could do we're not gonna have any media to put media money to put behind it so this is going to be a PR exercise so could we get someone interesting to shoot a nun with Lucky Saint and they yeah we sent the sent the brief into Rankin's office and said look yeah we don't have any money but like here's a brief (laughs) And he said, like, I'm free next Thursday. So you got the creative agency doing doing it for free, Rankin's photographing for free. How how'd you pay for the media? We didn't. We we fly posted it in Shoreditch, ah. and that was. I mean, we did, we had a little bit of like we had a little bit of money, and you always there's always there's always like, no, no, nothing is totally free. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, it was it was like working with him was it was pretty amazing because you uh, I remember he'll. Everyone, he's got, a, he's got a very big team and everyone gets the nun set up and you've got the agency team there and like it's it's all going on. And then he, he walks in, like steps into the, steps into the, into the camera and like someone's just sort of holding the, um, the camera strap ready open for him and he steps into the camera and starts taking photos and you see them flashing up on the screen next door and like immediately just getting these like magical images so it was like it was it was properly like wow this yeah just in- incredible to see him working and then yeah fly fly posted that fly posted that around London and yeah funny if it got like more visibility than I kind of anticipated like people definitely people definitely saw it but we didn't it wasn't until this January just gone that we it was the first time we put actual like proper money behind wow, it really because I'm sure I've seen it before this January so I must yeah. Have- read about it maybe or it's on like it's on our website Online, and it's yeah. yeah there's and it got you know it got it got lots of marketing press in 2019 
yeah, was this, this January was the first time and it's it's become like it's our sort of most distinctive asset and it sits it sits at the top of our like brand hierarchy. So that shot of the nun then flows down into the kind of um, studio images of like hands holding up, like all the kind of religious hands holding the beer. So yeah, it, it's en- it's ended up being yeah the very kind of the very top of our brand hierarchy and kind of everything flows visually well, it, it, sort of flows down re- from it. The religious connection is quite interesting, isn't it? Because of course, lots of beers go back to mo- monasteries and monk brewing traditions, you know, in Belgium and that kind of thing. There's a, so there's not there's not an impossible connection. Yeah, because from a na- like from a naming perspective, the original name that we had. And the very first route the other way like showed me when they when they did the kind of you know here's four concepts was called saint and it immediately gets you because it has this sense of like well that's it sort of sounds like a name that can live in the beer world yeah. and it has a sense that it's been around we couldn't get the trademark on it so we ended up sort of abandoning that and going on a very wild goose chase around lots of other names that took many many weeks and then from nowhere, Jono came up with like putting an adjective with saint, and it was lucky saint was, was like boom. The kind of the bit that's then come out of that, and the the dichotomy of like all the basically all the stuff I think that works in lucky saint has this dichotomy in in it. So there's a dichotomy in like lucky and saint are two words that don't belong together. Mm. Um, the nun and the beer are two things that don't really belong together. The idea of an alcohol-free beer in itself is a dichotomy. So that's ended up this idea of like break rules on a traditions, and this and the dichotomy in that has ended up being something that sort of flow now flows through everything that we do. Oh, that's really smart. I can see that. So, so you, you, you've you've got your name. You've got investors now. You've got some pretty good pulled in a few good favors at this point. What what's been the secret from that point to, to to scaling to where you are today? I mean, I mean, how how big is the business today? How many people do you employ now compared to when you were going around Germany convincing, you know, brewers to take a punt on you? So oh, today we're a team of sixty. So in COVID, I guess yeah, there was that kind of the pre-COVID era. So in COVID, we were a team of six. So in the last three and a bit years, we've gone from some six to sixty. That's been uh, definitely kept us busy. Yeah. But that, I guess, yeah, the sort of sequence was I spent the first 18 months doing almost nothing other than building distribution in hospitality and working with all these like incredible accounts, uh, which in turn meant that we weren't brilliantly placed when a pandemic came along. Yeah. Uh, and so, yeah, instantly lost 70% of our business, disappeared. I remember Shalene calling me kind of early-ish part of March We'd actually just had a board meeting where having launched, we'd launched draft in January where we'd sold three months stock in three weeks. And it would have been this like wild success that would sort of everyone had questioned whether it was ever going to be possible to like sell alcohol free beer on draft. And then had this board meeting at the beginning of March with two plans. There was fast and faster and everyone got revved up about the faster uh, and then a week later, Shalane called and he was like, just might be worth running the numbers just to see what would happen if you have no revenue, no cash receipts for 12 weeks. And it was pretty bleak. We had three weeks of cash. Wow. Um, this is as the pandemic was starting to So this was, hold. yeah, just as literally 
all the, do you remember the just the rumor mill started yeah going italy and, you know people getting in italy and all sorts uh, of stuff and is yeah. it going to come here yeah. what does it mean and the like worst case scenario was there was going to be like 12 weeks of yeah. shutdown and we've been due to go and basically i was about to like go out and raise some money so we had we didn't we didn't have much money and then you just put through the fact that we, we still hadn't been paid for january because we'd had this amazing month we've sold all this all this beer on draft but the way that the the payment cycle works you get paid 30 day end of month 30 days so you sell everything january it's due at the end of february hospitality by the end of february was getting very nervous so they weren't paying their wholesalers which mean the wholesalers didn't pay us so we were still like so no there was just no cash moving at all and then yeah lost on trade obviously all shut all all stopped we lost 70 percent of our volume and then, yeah, there was only there was only one channel left open, and that was DTC. And I remember it was the, I think it was the day before the official lockdown, and all the stockpiling stuff started happening. Mm. And we had this amazing day on Amazon. Mm. So we were set up. We were fortunate in that I, I'd been testing kind of DTC and ecom as a as a channel. Uh, had this incredible day on Amazon. It's like, oh, that's, that's great, but it's, you know, tomorrow will be that. And then it just it was the same the next day and the next day. And then a week later, our website just did did the same thing. And within ten days, we were we were a bigger business than we had been in January. No way. Really? So April April twenty twenty was a record. And presumably, month. not you weren't that well known either at this point, were you, as a brand? No, I think we we were kind of. Uh, Timing-wise, I guess we were fortunate in that we'd had we had enough distribution in the on trade that people recognised us. And one of the things that people were doing was uh, thinking, oh, "I'm going to be stuck at home. What are all the things I like having out yes. when I go out for a meal or go to the pub? You know, I want those things at home now." So we we were sort of there was enough of, but we weren't so big that we couldn't do things that would make a massive difference. Emma Heal, our MD, she just joined and. We remember, like we were like lucky we just, timing. Yeah, <laughs> but like Emma was in, like incredible. She was literally like roll sleeves up, at, at, you know, so just relishes that kind of relish that like challenge. And we yeah just started deploying money on Facebook, and that was just working unbelievably well. So a bunch of a bunch of stuff, and then uh, so that was the kind of first stage. Then we went. Uh, hard at, at grocery because that was kind of the next only channel we won listings across Sainsbury's, Tesco's, Majestic, Ocado, wow. all that summer Is this of 2020. In the year, that first year of pandemic? Yeah, so that summer, like so four months after the pandemic, we were suddenly we were across all this grocery distribution and then the on-trade business started coming back. And So, so perversely, do you think you're a better business because of the pandemic? Weirdly, because it, it did accelerate you into different channels that maybe you might have been slower to adopt had it not been for that? Yeah, I think definitely. And it just forced us to, yeah, get like unbelievably focused on like what was important. Twenty twenty was strange because we actually we hit targets in twenty twenty, but just not in the way that we expected. <laughs> and then in twenty twenty one, our business was a third, a third, a third on trade, off trade, D to C, which is this like incredible like mix of equal equal channel split, which is. Uh, so yeah, ended ended up in a really good place. Now, fast forward to now, you, you've also you've now opened a pub, haven't you? Mm. The, the lucky saint, naturally. <laughs> that, that, that naming didn't take long, did it, to come up with? 
No, although we did, we threw a few other things around, but it was um, it was a bit like it was a sort of like why look a gift horse in the mouth. Plus, it's quite a good name for a pub. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, were there any Lucky Saints before? We no. had that. So this is the, that's original as an idea. Yeah, funny. I've never checked, but yeah, I hope but it does so. sound like a pub name, doesn't it? I yeah. mean, when you say it, you just go, yeah, we'll pop down the Lucky Saint. <laughs> and it was an idea, funny enough, that came out of that original. After the first lockdown, we'd obviously given up our offices and. We started, we were six people in lockdown. And then by the end of that year, we were 15 or 16 people. And we were desperate to kind of get back into an office and get everyone back together and had this idea about well, what if we took, surely all these pubs are really struggling. Maybe we could rent the room above a pub and that could be our office and wouldn't it be fun? And we'd become great friends with the landlord downstairs. And then that idea sort of morphed into well, what if we ran the pub downstairs and then that uh, morphed into the sort of the ultimate kind of vision, which is, you know, a, a brand home, a sort of physical manifestation of the brand, uh, home for our team. And then this, uh, we, it's, it's going to become this like data and insight engine so we can actually learn firsthand how we can kind of positively influence consumer choices within like the pub environment. Do you experiment, can you, with, yeah. with different things, pricing or serve or temperature or you Ex know, all sorts of things? Yeah, all that stuff, yeah. Men menu placement, what goes on blackboards yeah. and then track it. And then the, the idea we haven't, we haven't, we haven't, uh, we're going to like produce a white paper on, on our learnings and then publish those back into the trade. And, and do you sell any alcohol on site? Is it a dry pub no 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 so it's a it's a full so if you if you didn't know the lucky saint brand you could walk into it and oh so you, you're operating you as know. a normal pub it, yeah. it operates as a totally normal yeah. pub we sell the best of all drinks of all strengths yeah it's not the m&m's world of lucky saint like okay. you, you walk in the only branding is yeah. is the is the tap badge yeah everything everything else is just it's just like our inter our interpretation on like a great pub but it's been amazing. Like it's it's been amazing, kind of team wise for a, a I don't know a company at our stage. To uh, we've got an amazing team, and now we're above a pub, so it's difficult. You walk down at the end of the day, and it's difficult to make it to the door without like someone someone sort of grabbing you. But like, let's have a quick pint. Ah, oh, brilliant! That's amazing. Yeah, it's really cool. And so, so if you're operating as a normal pub, presumably you get to see the rate, the sales of Lucky Saint versus. A real world example of how you perform versus regular beer, or yeah. Do you have any competitor non-alcoholic beers in in the range? Yeah, we've got. Yeah, we have. We have like our, our non-out range in general is is like is is really comprehensive, I guess, for a, for a pub. We also the, the tension that we're always trying to kind of balance is we want it to be representative of what a trading pub could like could realistically do. Mm. But also kind of show like what we think like best in class would look like. So we've got like amazing non-out spirits. We've got the best of non-out wines. Uh, amazing cocktail menu. Yeah, fridge full of non-out beers. Amazing full-strength beers. Like, wow. Yeah. So it's. So if you weren't doing non-alcoholic beer, what non-alcoholic would you do? If, if you look at the rest of the market, go. I've tested it. That's that's where you should go next. No, I don't mean like you're saying. But if you were someone else. Going, looking at the marketplace. I mean, wine, for example. I, I can't yeah. imagine having a non-alcoholic wine. But, no, I mean... But maybe that's it, me. It feels like, like non-alcoholic wine is probably yeah. the biggest opportunity, yeah. also the most difficult to solve. There's there's just there's so much kind of complexity in wine. And what, what alcohol, interestingly, what alcohol does is it 
it, there's no flavor in alcohol, but it carries flavor. So you, if you don't have alcohol in wine, you're you're just losing the kind of the depth and the complexity. So you need the unfiltered it. equivalent of what you've done with beer to somehow maintain the flavor without yeah exactly so one of the challenges i would have for you you talked about how non-alcoholic category is like 0.5 percent in the uk it's something like six percent in germany i can't remember the number was 14 percent maybe in spain now my experience of you know going out a night out wherever with friends i'm not drinking they're on these you know wonderful continental lagers i'll be on that warm orange juice you know that you know made from concentrate in a small 200 mil kind of serve feeling like i've really missed out but if I'm honest, the thing is with if I have a non-alcoholic beer, I don't really believe it's going to taste as good. It doesn't look good, does it? it? You know, it looks like the kind of diet version that I'm, you know, slightly kind of compromising. How do you convince people? Because you've got to grow the market, right? You only succeed if more people come into the category. How, how do you get them into the category? Yeah, I guess there's a, a traditionally alcohol-free beers being in a supermarket at the back of the supermarket on the bottom shelf somewhere and I guess the whole my whole thing about Lucky Saint was to try and make this category aspirational in the way that other drinks categories are aspirational and I guess the holy grail is like the ultimate drinking experience for beer is the pint in the British pub it's like it's a complete institution and so that's been what we've been like really we've massively focused on trying to introduce the alcohol-free beer on draft and so we launched it in 2020 beginning of 2020 just pre-covid originally and then have seen like huge success behind that and i think it is all down to the fact that you suddenly you can stand with your friends and you're in the round right you're you're, you're the in the round all yeah. and i always think of it like all beers become equal that once they're all in a pint glass yeah and then in turn, I think what what that's ended up also doing is the what we call like the power of omnichannel. So we know that consumers discover us in a pub and end up buying us through our website or in a supermarket. And so those the channel it's a it's then a it's a flywheel because you start seeing it everywhere and maybe you maybe you've seen it on draft in a pub, but you you were drinking on that occasion so you didn't actually have it but it's still the visibility that you get from it that then means that when you see it in a supermarket you do pick it up so it's ended up being yeah we're like huge kind of proponents of omni-channel advantage in the pattern like effectively it, it, we sort of view it as like it's a, it's our marketing to a large extent and then yeah the you know the the pint of course is just that it's the it's the holy it's the grail, hero, isn't it? Yeah, yeah it it's is. the signature thing. I mean, the other thing about the packaging as well that I notice is you don't really scream about the 0%, do you at all, really? It, it's, you, have to, you have to put your glasses on to see it, in fact. <laughs> so, yeah. so if you're in the round, actually, does anyone drink a pint of Lucky Saint thinking they're having a like an alcoholic beer? Yeah, I tell you what I hear a lot of is, um, and I'll give you the, the, the real, real example we heard from... Um, bartender at one of our, one of our pubs saying yeah i had i had four lads in last night and each time one of them would come to the bar to do their round they'd get three full strength beers and one lucky saint and and they didn't realize that they were all doing the same thing 
<laughs> so they, <laughs> really? were, they were all trying to they, when it was their round they were they were buying lucky saint for themselves and then giving everyone else full strength drink oh that's genius have uh, you ever had a situation where they, they like they've been buying rounds and they go lads we're not very pissed yet <laughs> it's like so they didn't realize <laughs> but yeah no the, I mean, the packaging yeah it was was the ambition kind of was, was talking talking about this earlier today like what a dr- what you're drinking says about oh, and the brand that drinking well, the type of drink that you're drinking and the brand says about you and i always think the most like the most acute example is if you go on a first date with someone whether you drink a glass of champagne or a mug of bitter or an 8% you know new england ipa says an enormous amount about who you are and one of the things I kind of always like kind of the ambition was always to solve was that someone someone would feel positive about drinking a lucky saint on a first date because it said something positive about I love, them. I love the positioning saving first dates since 2016 <laughs> <laughs> how, how many second dates have happened on the back of a lucky saint um but therefore yeah it doesn't like it doesn't say like it doesn't say alcohol free on the bottle no, it was always and it was always I think given where the categories come from and like perceptions of the category, I've always just felt like everything that we do needs to like, it needs to be done to a higher level and, and be, we kind of need to, we need to overcome that challenge around perception. So every packaging touch point that we do, like our D to C packaging is like beautiful and people still post about it on, on, on social media when they get it just so that, you know, everything that you touch and feel around lucky saint, feels like a quality experience so that you get this overall yeah like we're slowly hopefully but surely kind of changing this perception around alcohol free beer being a a less than proposition so we talked about a lot of the challenges and covid being a big one getting a brewery to agree to do it in the first place how you raise investment all those kind of things flipping it a bit what as you look back what have been the secrets to success over the last few years that have set you up for where you got to today I guess like stuff that I, I mean, I just, I just love, like, I just love the brand and like building that brand and having kind of relentless focus on it. And we've over, over, over five years, we've, we've worked really hard on kind of creating this like brand architecture that allows us to kind of, I guess, keep executing in ways that hopefully remain like engage it like it remains really engaging so i guess yeah really proud of 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 that brand and the work that we've we've done there the thing that's still taken me by surprise the most is is team so if i like wind back the biggest team i ever worked in was a team of three (laughs) (laughs) in a pre-lucky saint world and i'd never managed anyone so it's been it's been like an unbelievable kind of like learning journey. I, I just hadn't considered the importance and the power of team, and I'm not sure I can articulate how how we've done it. But we've sort of got this amazing, amazing, amazing team and amazing culture, and it's very yeah, it's very humbling to sort of like work with a group of people who are like so motivated and passionate about what we're doing. And yeah, as I said, I don't. It's hard to sort of it's hard to articulate how that's how that's happened, but it's it's something that I guess I guess it's just I guess if it's an, if it's advice, it's like trying to figure out how to foster that, um, because it is like 
one of our one of our values is like is is get lucky and which is basically i always think it's like nothing in this business happens unless someone does it and to have 60 people who are all making it happen is like is the most powerful thing mm, that's really good advice it's funny it reminds me I, I, I had a very brief stint in private equity and uh invested in a soft drink business and I remember when I met them, I, I you know, I, I said, look, okay, what's the secret to success when you make an investment and, and so on? I was expecting some very complicated answer. I was expecting sort of spreadsheets and you know formulas for how you manage your business, this kind of thing. They said we do three, we do three things. Number one, we hire the very best designers that we can possibly afford to get the positioning and the brand design right. They said, nail that, you're flying, firstly. Number two, we invest in the best people in the industry, like with the best experience. You know, we, we hire, they, they describe it as two rungs above. They're just like, we, we just go all in for the best people we can find. The third thing they said is we will invest in capacity and cost reduction. And it sounds a bit brutal, but they said, unless you've got the potential to grow three, four, five times a year, then you're not going to realize that the opportunity. So, you, you know, you invest ahead of the curve, as they'd call it. And so in this case, we built a, we built a whole new factory and you think, you know, spent one and a half million quid on day one thinking, whoa, but it, you know, reduced costs, it improved efficiency, it improved agility, it, you know, it did a whole lot of things. But it's interesting, that was, their, that was their playbook. It was as simple as that, those three things. I always think, so, so Shalana Chairman always talks about this kind of interesting thing about startups, which is a slight, it's a slightly different twist on what you were just saying, but is big companies are built on efficiency. Like everything that big companies do is trying to be more efficient. And the reason that they're by and large not very good at creating new brands and new concepts is because you have to like startups actually embrace inefficiency. In, totally and really yeah. and yeah. really and really lean into it. Yeah. And I look at like so many things that we've done at Lucky Saint and the way that we built it have been like wildly inefficient, but have given us permission to go on and do the next things. You are so spot on because if you if you think you're if you're Bex, right, the inefficiency of having a Bex blue or whatever, and, and then you have to slow the line down, switch it over. You've got another SKU, you've got another point of sale kit, you've got another. You know, you're absolutely right. Innovation creates you know creates inefficiency if you're a large efficient organisation. But that means people like you can succeed. Yeah, because you're you know you're not constrained by it. Luke has been an absolute blast, mate. Thank you so much for telling the story. I really inspired listening to you, I have to say. And it, there's so many, I love all the little nuggets and stories and how you arrived at where you are, which is just so interesting. No, thanks for thanks for having me, John, and thanks for uh, not giving me a hard time on any of the any of the marketing stuff. No, 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 no you've done, done an amazing job. As I say, um, we did we did we did put your stuff through System One tests, and you outperformed the average startup comfortably. So, uh, so well done. I was uh, yeah, I was daunted by the this, this the CMO brief and thinking like I'm well out of my depth. <laughs> Do you know what? Most CMOs I know want to be startup founders and act more like that. That's the irony, isn't it? Like you, most CMOs are sat there. How do we become more startup? How do we become more agile, take more risks, you know, back ourselves, build a team that really, really cares? And that's what you're doing. So it's, uh, it's, there's a lot to, lot to be inspired by. Thank you. Oh, thanks, John. Thank you so much for listening to the Uncensored CMO. I hope you enjoyed the episode. If you want to hear more like that, then please do subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. And if you're watching on YouTube, hit the subscribe button there too and never miss an episode again. If you want to contact me, I'm over at Twitter at Uncensored CMO or find me on LinkedIn where I'm under my own name, John Evans. Thank you so much for listening. I really appreciate it. And I hope you'll join me next time.